This is the CineSnob Podcast. Welcome to episode 185 of the CineSnob Podcast. I am Jared Kingery. And I am Cody Viafania. And as you can see, um, Jocelyn is still on maternity maternity leave. Maternity leave. You know... Maternity. I, Go ahead, I'm sorry. starting to think that maybe she's faking this. Why? Because you've seen exactly one picture of the baby since? I've seen one. I, oh, look. I think she was faking the pregnancy. <laughs> oh. I think she was faking the birth of the child. I think that's someone else's baby that we saw a picture of. <laughs> I think this is all a scam. I think that she she knew that she wanted to do this for a very short period of time. <laughs> and she wanted to give it a trial run. And she needed an out. And she used her out. And I'm I'm calling so bullshit she, on this. She, was, she laid that groundwork for the baby before she started doing this though so this is a long no this was no she was yeah she was playing the long game for sure oh well um you know uh as a matter of fact if if she is indeed um bailed for good i did find this in my garage and uh, i don't know if you can see that it is a sampling keyboard Mm. so we can um we can just play sound effects with uh you know, like this this keyboard's like thirty years old, so it's a little, it's got a little dated sound effects. So it's got it's got a lion. Can you hear that? Mm-hmm. It's a lion. We can also have a, whoops, hold on, a dog. Oh well, so she's done we that can, before. <laughs> yeah, now we, now we can uh, we can pretend like Jocelyn's here, just not talking. We can have this dog barking in the background. Yeah. Um, let's see what else we could we can have a. Uh, Oh, look, we have a laser. Yeah, see? So mm-hmm. maybe we don't need her after all. We've got the uh, Casio SK5 sampling keyboard that uh, my cousin got for Christmas one year and then sold to me for five bucks. So, yeah. Your, your cousin sold you? They didn't, couldn't just give you something? Eh, you know, we were kids. That five bucks was more important at the time than, than uh, just giving me the thing. I don't know. I I, th- I don't remember what the deal was. <laughs> it was so he you got jobbed. Uh, well, you know, I mean, it's a nice keyboard for five bucks. I gotta say, you know, I don't. Mm-hmm. I still don't to this day. It's this when we were kids. My sister and I got a keyboard from our grandparents, and I have this one too. And I still don't know how to play. I can play Happy Birthday. That's it. I'm not gonna do it right now. You know. I'm not. A, oh no! Please do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a machine or anything. Oh, anyway, let's talk a drink a- at the same time. <laughs> oh, look at that! Let's talk about your hat, Cody. Hardcore Henry. Yeah, a miserable experience of a movie. <laughs> um, I do believe we talked about the movie on this show. I believe we did because it was a, I believe, a Fathom event mm-hmm. that we were we went to that was a live broadcast and this is a movie that um is all shot pov style from a uh like a stuntman's head yeah and uh i believe it was um like a, a it was russian yeah there it was it's russian and um it was in a hurry <laughs> uh-huh. it also had uh charlotte copley in it Mm-hmm. And um, Haley Bennett, who's actually gone on to do some better stuff since then. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was basically a, a, a video game style right. 
like first person, you know, type of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was like you saw the, the guy in the, in whoever played Henry, um, was wearing like some weird apparatus with a, uh, like a GoPro right here. And like, I, I don't know. It was, it's a terrible, like it was, a, it was a horrible experience. The movie sucked and it was terrible to watch, but eh, you got a great hat out of it. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, some of the hats, I will admit, um, I have not seen the movie uh, for. I've just kind of bought them because they made me laugh. This one I have seen, and this one I can attest to the fact that it's a bad movie. Is so. it a trucker hat? It is. Okay, so it's got the mesh back. Wow, yeah. so it's it's trendy and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of hats, um, I'm sorry about the Astros losing Cody, because they, oh. base- they wear baseball hats. They do, right? and, and thanks for bringing it up. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a game seven situation. Like they got to game seven and are uh, forced to game seven. And, uh, yeah, then no, lost, it was, so. uh, it was unfortunate, but you know, I don't, I think that there's plenty of people that are happy about it. So, I, um, I don't think there's any happy empathy. that they lost. Yeah. Oh yeah. With the whole, uh, cheating thing. Still. The whole, yeah. The whole cheating thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, um, asking you if, uh, there's, there's, uh, a, a a guy that I used to work with who I follow on Facebook, he's a huge Astros fan and he would get mad when people would like dunk on them for it. Oh, like, really? Uh, there was someone that dunked on the Astros for it. Like, I want to say like right before the pandemic. And it, it like, I was like, dude, come on, man. Like they cheated. Like, no, there's no defending it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, you know, as a, it, and it's a tough place to be as a fan because like, they've been my favorite team since I was a child. Like mm-hmm. I, like I can't, I'm not just going to like stop liking them. I have to like sit through it. So I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't think any of it was good. I don't agree with it. And, um, and so my, my opinion was that the best thing that they could possibly do is like win a clean championship as soon as possible to get yeah. everyone's mind off of it. And, you know, they, they went to the world series cleanly last year and they got one step away this year. So, you know, it, I'm, I'm sure those players will be booed for the rest of their careers, but you know. <laughs> oh well, man. It's speaking care. of being booed for the rest of your career, you you know you can attest to this as a Spurs fan. Uh huh. Up until the day he retired, Manu Ginobili was booed in Phoenix every single minute he ever played. Every time he touched the ball. Yeah. Uh, look, I think I've gone on record as saying that I think Manu played a few too, few seasons too long. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is good to have that kind of guy uh on your team like they're booing him in another city because he was so good and killed them so many times yeah um you know other than that it's uh um it's good to be a spurs fan well i mean it was good to be a spurs fan i don't know where we're going from here but we were just talking about this on the ramble i just finished recording with them a few minutes ago and jerry and eddie were asking me what was more painful the ray allen three uh, or the Derek Fisher point four. Oh, it was the well, yeah. Because with the Ray Allen three, we were seconds away from a championship, and with the Derek Fisher thing, that series wasn't even over after that shot. Right. Um, I mean, it, everybody in San Antonio knew that that game six was going to be like like that game six was a we were dead men walking in that mm-hmm. game six, but. Um, man, that's a good question. Uh, you know, at the time, obviously it's the Ray Allen three. I feel like we've talked about this before, but at the time, obviously it's the Ray Allen three, but the redemption for the next year was 
was part of you know was is part of that story those two things go exactly together um the uh Derek Fisher thing was like first of all it was height of that rivalry I, mean, I don't know why I changed hands height of the rivalry between the Lakers and the Spurs that was the super team that the Lakers had built and it was that oh that fucking time Kobe's on trial for rape and he's getting flown in and like getting a hero's welcome in every game yeah from that um you know during that uh every time he's coming in so there's like those three giant frustrations right there and then on top of it it came right after this amazing shot from by Duncan. Duncan over Shaq at the top of the key to to take the lead which I believe was in uh the Spurs uh <laughs> we talked about this. It was in like their twenty plus year playoff history highlight thing. Oh yeah, that sh- and <laughs> it was like, oh here's some here's some awesome moments. Just don't remember exactly what came after them. Like, <laughs> yeah, what came immediately missing after context. Them. Yeah, so it was like, whoa. Uh, well, the, the argument that Jerry and Eddie were making was that had the Spurs won that title, it would have put Duncan with Jordan at six titles. And it would have. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, presuming that. Well, I mean, that's a long time between that and 2014, though. That was 2004, right? Yeah. Wait, oh, I'm that? talking about the the Ray Allen one. If they would have won the championship. Oh, there. oh, yeah. But who the, knows? But who knows what they would have been? How the next season would have gone? Right. I mean, the narrative would have been flipped. Right. Would it have been a motivation to keep you know to to do that? Um, yeah, I, look, everyone talking about the Jordan comparisons. I, I just don't like. It's a different era, and he's a you know a, 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 a godlike player. So any comparison to it now is like you're just finding reason to either make the comparison and make it valid or make it invalid. And I just don't think it like the like LeBron winning. What is LeBron at five now? He has two in Miami. No, wait, is it three in Miami? No, we only had one in Miami, I think. Or no, it was two. They won two back-to-back. So two in Miami, one in Cleveland, so four. Yeah. You know, um, and there's still the, we. you know, he was talking about not getting respect this week after winning his fourth title, which, whatever, man. I don't, I don't get it, but okay. Um, you know, you can make the comparison with him and Jordan, obviously, and lots of people do, and uh, people used to do it with Kobe, but it's just like it's a it's a totally different era. Like the competitiveness was is different now. Um, the the LeBron era for sure is different because that started the era of just like going wherever the fuck you wanted to. Like oh, I'm gonna go play in Miami now with a couple of other superstars. Well, that's that's what made that that championship, the 2014 championship, so good was that. It was the super team versus the Spurs who were still largely built from within. Yeah. And that, that narrative, like that, that will always be the best one for me. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's got I mean, the Duncan redemption from the, from like slapping the court in 2013. Yeah. And the, and you know, Kawhi at the time being the homegrown guy. Yeah. Um, just kind of then turning into a monster. Mm-hmm. And then now kind of, uh, <laughs> I saw the latest uh, story today was he wants a point guard now in LA. Like, yeah, there's there's also some stories that he that he got special treatment and a lot of the his teammates were pissed off because apparently he lives in San Diego and would be really late to practices and and stuff because he lived in San Diego and commuted to L.A. 
uh, I know he he took the helicopter, same helicopter company that Kobe did that ended up, he ended up dying in the crash. Um, I don't get it. I don't get that. Look, I, I mean, I, I don't. Why would you? I thought he was from Los Angeles. Why would he want to live in San Diego? I thought that was the whole point. Uh, I I believe Kawhi went to college in San Diego, didn't he? Yeah, but I thought he was from L.A. Because I thought that was the whole narrative. He wanted to go back home. Sure, but I think that just meant California. Eh, whatever. Fuck Kawhi. Yeah, because right. he's from... He's from... Um, not that it matters. Yeah, he's from that area. So, yeah, and I went to college there. So, yeah, I, I think that was the whole thing. But, yeah, oh, it's... Okay. Uh, who gives a shit? Look, man, he... he um, yeah, uh, that he wants to be LeBron, and I, I don't know that he's got the, you know, the well, same uh, it's business just been, mindset. It's just been crazy to watch him go from like a beloved self uh, selfless superstar to like the biggest villain in the NBA at this point, like ruining like three franchises in his wake, getting Doc Rivers fired, uh, you know, screwing the Spurs over, and then and then jumping ship with Toronto to get where he wanted to go. Like it's. It sucks. That whole story sucks. <laughs> yeah, I know. It really um, the, it, the the modern day NBA just sucks. I don't. I I. It's really turned me off as a fan because like when guys just go wherever they want, and you know what? I mean, look, the guy guys should be able to play where they want to within reason. But when it's like let's build a super team, and then you know he uh, like Kawhi puts uh, only gives uh, the Clippers like a two year commitment. Yep. Or whatever it was. So it's like, well, fuck you, man. Like, that's nothing. That Well, and he pulls other people into it. Like, that's that, that was that whole thing with Paul George where where OKC took a huge oh, yeah. risk, to, you know, getting Paul George. And then Paul George ends up signing an extension with him. And it's a great story. And then I think one year into his extension, uh, he demands a trade. And then <laughs> Oklahoma City has to gut their team. And, and uh, you know, in order to make Paul George happy, the guy who just rewarded them with the... It, just, it was just gross. Like, just this terrible narrative that I hate. I, I don't... Yeah, I mean, it's it's become even more of a player's league, which is fine um, to a point, you know, because that's always what it was, was, you know, uh, individual talents. And, you know, people were fans of certain guys as opposed to actual teams. But the uh, the, the the way it's turned into this sort of you know, all these dudes hang out in one spot and then go, you know, move around when they've exhausted whatever options they have is, it just doesn't, it makes me feel sick as a Spurs fan, because that was never, it was always the, um, never a team built through free agency. No, they're not, they're, they're not built for that. Um, you know, and you know, now it's way to their detriment, um, because it's, you know, all these guys go to LA or, you know, even something like uh, like Milwaukee, like how long they can they keep? Uh, you know, I don't know how to say his name. Antetokounmpo. Um, Antetokounmpo. How long? How long can they keep him? You know, this homegrown thing in in Milwaukee. You know. Yeah. Anyway, um, enough NBA talk. Uh, anything else before we move on? No, let's talk movies. All right, <laughs> on our movie podcast. <laughs> Here, let's move on to reviews. Here are this week's reviews. First up, we have tri- The Trial of the Chicago 7. We have to make a decision right now, a decision I just assumed we'd already made four months ago when trial prep began. Are we using this trial to defend ourselves against very serious charges that could land us in prison for 10 years? 
Or are we using it to say a pointless fuck you to the establishment? Fuck you. That is what I was afraid of. I don't know if you were saying fuck your answer. I was also confused. If we leave here without saying anything about why we came in the first place, it'll be heartbreaking. If the jury finds us guilty, we're not going to be leaving here at all. And the only thing we need to say about why we came here is it wasn't inside violence. I'm a jury. Why? The trial shouldn't be about us. I would love it if it wasn't about us, but it definitely is. So this is a, an Aaron Sorkin uh, film. Um, you could probably tell from the dialogue. Written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. His second film he's directed after Molly's Game, uh, which came out a few years ago, which I actually liked quite a bit. Uh, this is um, the story of uh, a real-life story of the Chicago 7, as, it, as the title um, illustrates. Uh, this was released in theaters for a few weeks, and then now it's on Netflix. Cody, tell us about the trial of the Chicago 7 and what you thought of it. So you say it's a it's a, an Aaron Sorkin movie, as you can tell from the dialogue, and I think Aaron Sorkin has certain qualities that, um, you know, I refer to as good Sorkin or bad Sorkin, uh, where you know that anytime you get a project that he's uh, written, that it's going to be indulgent. Like that's just he's he's a writer, and he's a writer first and foremost, and he's really known for really, you know really sharp dialogue, you know, uh, basically any character in any Aaron Sorkin movie is capable of delivering like a devastating one-liner. Uh, and, um, and it happens for better or worse, you know, you get some really great stuff out of it. Um, and he's written some great screenplays and and great TV shows. And then you also get the newsroom, which is, (laughs) you know, um, it's the single most divisive Aaron Sorkin project I've ever seen. And I saw most of studio 60. Yeah. And it's it and it's just like again overwritten, overwrought stuff, and um and, and and you know you see all the hallmarks of of the Sorkinisms. Um, you know, there's even supercuts of him using the same. Like this is the one that doesn't have a Don Quixote quote in it because that's usually <laughs> a, a hallmark of Sorkin uh, Sorkin projects. Is a Don Quixote thing comes into play. Um, but you know, you get your walk and talks, you get your um your your one liners and things like that, and. And for me, um, it's the good side of Sorkin. It's the good indulgent. Um, and, and it's mostly, a, um, I would say, like maybe like 60% courtroom drama mixed with uh, 40% narrative stuff. And um, I think it's a really good script. Um, it does have those elements and those moments that are overwritten and, and feel scripted in their, in their um, you know, um, really wordy monologues. You know, that's all the hallmarks of him. It's also really funny, man. I I, I laughed out loud at like <laughs> just some clever dialogue, like ten to fifteen times. Like I was just, I, there was there's some lines in here that are so good. Like I wrote down a couple of them just for examples. Like there's um, like there's a there's a part where um where like they're they're a someone's objecting in court and then before the the judge can speak they're saying overruled you know like yeah, that yeah. was a great a great thing um there's a there's a there's a scene where a judge played by frank langella um says that that the mark rylance's character would be the first one to ever accuse him of being racist and then the other <laughs> attorney says well then let me go on the record for being the second or something like that like just just really snappy smart uh funny dialogue that's that's throughout the movie and um and I found the, the the movie itself to be really entertaining. Um, you know, with courtroom dramas, you can sometimes get bogged down in the details, and I think it starts that way a little bit. It's just a little bit too dry courtroom detaily. But as you get through it, you see the nuances of the story. And for me, it's a movie all about cast. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, 
it has a fantastic cast. And I see there's a lot of conversation happening online on film Twitter about like who's good and who's bad in the movie. <laughs> and I honestly think that everyone's really good. I think you get great performances from from Eddie Redmayne, who I usually don't like, who I think is very good. Um, you get a, a great, a good performance from Jeremy Strong. Um, I, I don't know what accent he's doing, but Sasha Baron Cohen is 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 good in this. Um, yeah, I think I think he's really good. Um, and I I don't I I don't know enough about Abby Hoffman to know what he sounds. Yeah, like. Yeah, you can hear Sasha's voice, like real voice, coming through a couple times. Um, for me, I think the best part of the movie is Mark Rylance, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, who plays uh, the lawyer? Who's the defense lawyer? Who's uh, representing the Chicago Seven? And um, it's just a great performance from Mark Rylance. I mean, it's it's a little bit more um, a little bit more showy than he normally does. You know, Mark Rylance's performances are, are a little bit uh, subdued sometimes, and this one he gets to be a little bit more uh, energetic. You know, he he really handles Sorkin's dialogue really well, and everyone does. You know, with with Sorkin dialogue you run the risk of it feeling like writing, you know, like it feeling scripted, it feeling wording, yeah. if, if the delivery's not off. And I don't think anyone struggled with the dialogue. I even like the few minutes we get of Michael Keaton, who's great. In yeah, the movie. He, he comes in and just sort of knocks that performance out of the park, I think. Yeah. I, I think the one person who might struggle a little bit because the character is so cartoonish is Frank Langella. Mm. Um a little bit, yeah. And, and you know, I don't. the The character is supposed to be played as sort of, I don't know if senile is the right word, but just sort of like, like, like out of step. Yeah. It, it, not not that he's not that you know he's being accused of being racist and and kind of regressive, but that he like screws up people's names and for like literally forgets everyone's name. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I I think that the the thing that stands out the most about the movie is how. Um, maybe unintentionally topical it is. Um, you know, I don't know when this movie was written and filmed, but um, a lot of what has come to light over the past year um, <laughs> is mirrored in here. You know, it's it, the whole movie is about people who got, um, who got arrested and charged for a peaceful protest turning violent, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and so you, you really see um, a lot of parallels to modern day stuff, especially this year. Um, it, though it, you know, it's protesting Vietnam more than anything, uh, right? Vietnam. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, it's, and, and it's at the, de- the, de- the de- outside the democratic national convention, yes. which of course, if you, I mean, if you know that, like, um, Johnson had decided not to run again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's kind of bailing on the, the war and everything else. And yeah, that's, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and, and so I, I think that, um, you know, the the complaints that I have with the movie seem to be nitpicky. Like, I think that, so Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays the prosecutor, and I think it's a good performance, but I don't really think his, I, there's there's a little bit of a hinting that his character has maybe more of a conscience than the movie shows at any given point. Um, and, I, and I don't think that there's enough conflict or focus on his character. Um, you know, I maybe wanted a little bit more from people like John Carroll Lynch, who's also great. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe falls a little bit short, but look, this is an acting showcase. It's a screenplay showcase. And I think Sorkin knocks it out of the park. I think it's a really great movie. Yeah, no, I, I do agree. And I, I think that, you know, I don't have enough of a Sorkin diet to really know the bad Sorkin from the, well, I do know the bad Sorkin from the good Sorkin. Um, I, I've seen the newsroom little bits of it. I've seen, uh, studio 60. Like I mentioned, I never really saw a lot of the West wing. I know that it's very beloved and just had a reunion or something on, uh, 
what would you call that? Like a play? Like they pl- did a play performance? Like of a stage a, performance? Yeah, stage performance of uh, of the uh, of an episode. It's one of those things that, um, you know, you, you can tell right away that it's an Aaron Sorkin film. Obviously, I think he won. Did he win an Oscar for The Social Network? Yes. Yeah. So that's kind of his big movie calling card from there. And then... Um, you know, there there are some things. You sent me a clip of of people comparing the dialogue that he has in this film to dialogue. Is it on uh, the West Wing? There, were, yeah, there were there were two instances from two different projects that he had reused dialogue from. But yeah, like, but it was in like a past tense as opposed to a present tense. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's probably the and, and that particular example is probably the biggest one I could say for stuff that that annoys me about Sorkin is the Monday morning quarterbacking. Yeah. And well, that's that's all that the newsroom was. It was it was the news getting it right, right outside yeah. of the moment. And you know, this movie has a couple of moments of that. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. I almost used the clip. Eddie Redmayne is is addressing um, his frustrations with Abby Hoffman um, and Jerry Rubin, who are, are kind of the 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 most counterculture of the of the seven on trial, and it's it's a little too on the nose. Um. And that's that's the one thing I can take away from this movie that that I don't like is that, and I don't like it in any, anything really. This historical drama, this winking at the audience, um, but I think it for the most part it avoids it uh, really well, and it does uh, put together a very timely story. And again, I I think it's only timely in that stuff is happening. You know, we we notice it. You know, it's um, you know the the idea of 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 people's civil rights being trampled has never really gone away. It just, when it it pops up in like these nice parallels, it, uh, it makes it even more obvious. Um, I think the, you know, the story of, um, of the, the black Panther, um, member, uh, Bobby seal, who gets kind of lumped in with the, with the Chicago seven. I think that story, you know, probably could have used a little bit more. I agree. Um, cause it kind of just, it kind of plays one note until the it kind of it comes to an end in a ghastly fashion uh for for uh uh american judicial process but there's not a lot of background into what goes into it that you know you see a little bit of him at bobby seal in the beginning of the film before it flashes forwards you know whatever it was a year or something later um but that said, it is actors. It's a definitely an uh, an actors movie, I think, and I think everyone does really well. Except, you know, I think Frank Langella's character is is a little too cartoony, a little too villainous right away to um, really sell it as a real person. But I I don't know. I mean, I don't know how well the judge was handling the case at the time. Well, apparently, pretty awfully. I mean, right. I, I mean, it, I don't I, I don't doubt that it's it's that he was terrible, but just that yeah. it's comically terrible. Is... I, I wish I knew more about the case to see how to, to like compare it to history and, and see how much of it was a dramatization and how much of it. I, I was talking to our, our friend James, who said that it was pretty shockingly accurate. Um, so, yeah, I know there's some dramatics invented um, sure. for certain, you know, certain things. Obviously, um, you know, the I think I think Abby Hoffman's politics are a little bit softened for the movie to make him a little less of a radical. Uh, but, you know, I, all, all in all, I think it, I think it's a really, really good movie. And it, it's, um, you know, if you're if you're a fan of Aaron Sorkin, you'll for sure love it, I think. 
And even um, even if you're a casual viewer, I think it's I think it's well made enough. It's you know it's not it's not too dense. It's not too Mm-mm. you know. I I, I try. I, I don't I even caution- think it's that soapboxy. Really. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. I I don't think it's for a political point of view. I don't really think it's that political. Like it, I think we're probably far enough away from it. You know, fifty two years uh, that you can see it for what it is as. Like un, you know, people, uh, the government trying to stamp out, you know, opposition to the war, etc. Um, you know, if this movie, if this had happened, you know, if this was a movie about this summer's riots, or, or not riots, but protests and and whatever else came of it, it, you know, it would be a little tough to to swallow, I think, for a lot of people. But I think there's enough, there's enough daylight between what happened 52 years ago and this for people to not really see it as an issue film uh anyway what's your grade cody well you know i think that it's it's the it feels like the right movie for the right time in a lot of different ways and um and again this the screenplay is is i think one of the you know between the screenplay and the acting i think they're both you know, you really have to pick it apart to find flaws in it. Um, especially, like I said, it is it is uh, really sharply funny for me. I, I I really enjoyed how you know again those wit those those witty things that you know sometimes with Sorkin characters you feel like nobody is capable of being that witty all of the time. <laughs> yeah, and 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 this I don't think ever hits that. Um, so yeah, I think it's one of the better movies of the year. I'm giving it an A minus. Yeah, I'm gonna give it the same thing too. I think it is one of the one of the better movies I've seen this year. It just has um. It, there's an ease of of it that you that you can you kind of ease into the world really really well, and it doesn't hurt that you know all the performances are are super great and played by people you know, you know with uh I, again I, I do wish um you know there, there's something about Joseph Gordon Levitt's character that I think is meant to hint that he has a conscience and I think that because it's Joseph Gordon Levitt you want him to be likable. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that that's really the case with the real prosecutor, but yeah, a minus for me. This is available on Netflix now. Um, I do believe it's also in theaters. If you mm-hmm. if you want to do that, I don't know why you would. But yeah. <laughs> um, all right, let's move on to our next movie: David Burns, American Utopia. What if we could eliminate everything from the stage except the stuff we care about the most? Without cables or wires. What would be left? Well, it would be us. And you. And that's what the show is. Everybody's coming to my house. Everybody's coming to my house. I'm never gonna be alone. And I'm never gonna go As people, we're a work in progress. Who we are, it extends beyond ourselves to the connections between all of us. So this uh, is a concert film of sorts, um, film performance of a Broadway show. Uh, from David Byrne, of course, musician, uh, lead singer of the Talking Heads, years and years ago. Um, it is directed by Spike Lee, and it is on HBO and HBO Max. Cody, tell us what you thought of David Byrne's American Utopia. You know, I am 
I am in a talking heads phase right now. Um, oh, really? Why I is, am. Why is that? Well, I, I've mentioned this before, and you're going to tune out, but um, <laughs> but uh, Adam Scott and Scott Ackerman have a series of podcasts where they where they go through bands' albums one by one, and it's like a goofy comedy show, but they okay. talk about the music pretty in depth, and they always have band members that come on, and so they've done U2 and R.E.M., and uh, Talking Heads was their, is their new one. Um, mm. and, um, and I had also, you know, Talking Heads is one of those bands that I've always meant to try to get into, but I don't think I was quite, like, my, my musical taste had not quite adapted to being able to appreciate them well, it's yet. It's way before your time, too. I mean, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. they started in 1976. And so, you know, uh, I had gone back and I've been listening to the albums as the episodes have been coming out and really, really enjoying the music and, you know, it's kind of, it's finally all clicking for me and, and, and something that even before American Utopia was planned to come out, something I've been listening to pretty regularly recently. So um, you, you, Talking Heads, it's sort of famous for having a concert film called Stop Making Sense mm-hmm. um, that uh, was directed by Jonathan Demme and um, is widely considered to be like the greatest concert film of all time. And um, I actually watched it for the first time a couple weeks ago, and I think it very much lives up to that hype. Um, where it's just a really incredible, you know, shot performance. Um, but it is what it is, you know, it's a concert film. It's, 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 you know, a really, really great concert film. And the thing with, uh, American Utopia is that, you know, this show, the American Utopia show was a very popular tour. It came through San Antonio twice, sold out at the actually mention actually mentions that in the, in the movie that it's either went to San Antonio twice, which I was surprised by. Yeah, it was a very funny moment, but uh, I and I know people who went to both shows, and uh, and then uh, it had a, a residency at Broadway, and um, it, it, you know, the easiest thing to compare this to because it's so recent is the Hamilton. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't want to even call it a movie, um, you know, the Hamilton, but I guess it technically is a movie on uh, Disney Plus, mm-hmm. which is a filmed performance of Hamilton, and. You know, you hit the same point, I think, where it's really hard to judge this as a movie because there's there's no real hallmarks of a movie. You know, it may be directed by Spike Lee, but, you know, it's it's a filmed performance where you occasionally get, like, a really interesting-looking close-up, kind of like you did in Hamilton every so often. Yeah. And beyond that, there, there's only one moment in the film that feels like Spike Lee had an influence on it. And it's a I powerful... Know exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, a cover of a Janelle Monae song, and mm-hmm. it's a really powerful moment in the movie, and it's really well done the way that that it's directed. Um, but that's the only real part of the movie that feels like Spike Lee, um, yeah. and and like feels that something that any like like only Spike Lee could have done in that moment. Like that's why you hire Spike Lee to do. Right. And the thing about it is that that moment isn't part of the show. Other like in any other form. And I think the one thing I was looking for with the show is some sort of theme or, or connective tissue that kind of ties it all together to maybe make it more than just like a David Byrne concert. And I don't know that it ever gets there. Um, you know, there's some talk that he has about like the interconnectedness of people and like talking to people and, you know, having people face to face. Um, and, and I don't know that that theme ever really shines through in any significant way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but as a concert film, I mean, the music is great. I, I really, I think it's a great performance, and it's interesting to see the evolution of David Byrne from, you know, if you watch Stop Making Sense, David Byrne, like, 
<laughs> like uh, they, they just in, in in books that basically every guy was doing cocaine backstage <laughs> yeah. during stop making sense and you know david Byrne is like running around the entire stage the whole performance uh and um and uh and this is a more subdued older david Byrne. um you know the band sounds great you know in in, in like you see in the clip everyone is untethered they're not connected to anything so there's you know, a lot of dance choreography they've got a six person percussion section which is great i think the best um you might not remember like the specifics of it but i think the best stretch of the of the movie is um a set of songs that they actually played during stop making sense so like i think they play like this must be the place i zembra um slippery people they play yeah like, i'm this- not i'm not as familiar with the film the the, the uh discography of yeah heads. so my main takeaway from this was like I'm not sure why this exists as a movie. I'm glad that it does because I think it's a great show and I think it, it you know it's a great live uh, a filmed live performance. There's nothing really cinematic about it. Yeah, I I 100% agree with that. I don't know that uh anything that I really loved about it I think was already in the stage show. And the there's an, a moment where he talks about um and, and you probably know what I'm talking about. He gets he talks about the band making money, getting signed to their first contract, and he talks about buying a TV, like mm-hmm. a 20 inch Sony Trinitron. And there's a great effect on the stage because uh, it's kind of surrounded by a beaded curtain, where light comes through one particular part of the beaded curtain to simulate a TV. And it was just a, it's great stagecraft. Um, obviously, though, that's in the stage performance, right? Um, and I don't know that the movie version adds anything to that. Like you get a reverse shot of him looking through there, which I don't know that that really carries quite the same meaning as him kind of being enraptured by the TV. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know that it, it, again, with like we talked about with Hamilton, like it, it feels like it diminishes the stagecraft of it and the idea that it's directing your gaze to where you need like the movie's directing your gaze as a as opposed to the performance directing your gaze. Sure. And I, again, I don't really think this is, it's not quite in the same boat as Hamilton because it's just a lot of choreography and, um, you know, per, uh, musical performances. Still though, it feels like it robs the stage performance of a little bit of its, you know, what makes it such a unique experience and what it made people go see this on Broadway and twice in San Antonio for, um, you know, and then David Byrne has that kind of elder statesman status, uh, yeah. you know, I think anyone watching this is more than familiar with David Byrne, more than familiar with his politics, more than familiar with what he stands for. And I think that, um, you know, comes across, I think that's how the, the message comes across is that, you know, what he's doing. I don't think the film effectively, I don't think the show, I don't want to say the film cause it's, I don't think that's anything to do with the film part of it, but I, I don't feel like the show expressly connects those dots i think it's more of an impressionistic thing uh which is fine and if you understand the music and you understand david byrne and you understand what his career has been then sure yeah um but as a as a standalone project i don't know that it it does that you know kind of we're all connected thing as well as it wants to and i think that's probably the point though is you're with music you're really supposed to kind of make your own connections I've always felt that way, you know, like you listen to an album and you can understand that concept that comes through it. 
Um, and then like this essentially is a David Byrne mixtape and you can understand the context that comes through that. Um, again, I, I, I think it's a great show and I would, I would probably love it live, but I don't know what the movie accomplishes as a film that the stage show doesn't, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it is, it's great to see, you know, and it's, it's the performances are, you know, the music is great. If it's legit them playing and singing live on stage, I don't know. You know, I do think some of this stuff is staged. Uh, obviously, the close-ups, I think, are done later, um, like where they were with Hamilton. Um, and then there's other great moments. Like, literally, uh, you can see, I don't know who it is. When the At the very end, they're kind of marching through the audience. And it's being filmed with an iPhone. I don't know if you caught that, mm-hmm. which was a, a, a cool touch. But, you know... Um, I, I I just I, this is a poor substitute for the live show. I assume if you've seen the live show, if you haven't seen the live show, then I'm sure it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I'm not sure it's great. I, it is it is it's a really good performance because that's the boat we're in. Yeah. Um, anyway, what's your grade? Yeah. Again, it's hard to base a grade off of anything other than source material here, um, and the source material is really good. Um, uh, and, uh, and it's an enjoyable concert. I don't, I, you know, I think that your the mileage you get out of it is going to be largely dependent on your enjoyment of David Byrne. If it's your type of music, if you like talking heads, um, I, I think that it's generally like not offensive music and I think it's easy to like, but you know, there's, it's not, you know, it's subjective like anything else. Musically. It's very avant-garde at times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I mean, if you know the music of the air, you know, like it's like listening to Peter Gabriel. You're like, what am I listening to, man? This is like really smart. You know? Yeah. It's, it's like that. And it's, and it's really kind of, you know, especially with that percussion section, you get a lot of like cultural, um, you know, like, uh, beats and stuff like that, that, that really add a lot to it. So I'm going to give it a solid B and, and that's mostly based on performance. Like I said, I don't know that the Spike Lee direction really adds anything to it. It must be nice to just get Spike Lee to do it. Cause I mean, it doesn't really it, it like it's it doesn't really feel anything like Spike Lee except for one brief moment um that's really more of an editing thing than a direction yeah. thing yeah. um but yeah a solid B for me too um it's 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 good it's um you know it's hardly a movie you know it is just a filmed concert or i don't want to call it a concert cuz it's not really i mean it's more of a broadway show it's a performance, performance. live performance um you know and there's a lot of um artsiness to it that you know you're not getting from a concert concert sure um yeah b for me uh this is available on hbo max uh let's move on to our next movie time judge's office my name is sybil richardson and uh, my family is waiting on a ruling regarding my husband's matter I was just wondering if you might have any information on, like, an update on it. If it's no, a- we don't have anything yet. What does on Monday? Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Okay. All have right. Good weekend. Bye-bye. <laughs> this is Civil Hi. again. No, we don't have anything. Alrighty, thank you so much. My twins will be 18 next month. They have absolutely no idea what it means to have a father in their house. What fathers even do. 
Hello. Did you get any word from over at the big houses no, today? Anything yet? Nothing yet. No. Okay. Do you got a chance to call today? I have not. No. Okay. This is a documentary. Um, a lot of it, um, like self-shot. It looks like um, a woman named Sybil Richardson, who uh, you know works as a she works as I guess a motivational speaker under the name Fox Rich. Um, regarding this is about her. Uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Her efforts to have her husband released from prison um, after he went to jail for um, an armed robbery charge and he was given a 60 year sentence. Um, this follows her as she's grow as her family grows without him. Um, Cody, tell us about time and what you thought of it. Well, it's, it's, it's a bit of a tough one to crack um, because I think that there's a couple things at play with time. Um, so it's 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 a black and white documentary, as you see from the clip, and in uh, um, uh, you know, like you said, self shot, which I think adds a lot to the mix because it's it's oddly cinematic, uh, even though it's uh, you know like self shot home video footage, you know, interspersed with you know stuff that's happening modern because this takes place within a twenty year span of time. Um, where, uh, uh, you know, like you said, um, uh, Sybil and her, and her, uh, husband were, uh, arrested for robbery. You know, she took a plea and he did not, and he ended up getting sentenced to, I think, was it 60 years? 60 years. So they, they were, um, and admittedly so, uh, robbed a bank yeah. in, uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. After, um, after being desperate for, right. Is, and um the sentence the the punishment was like five to 99 years yes um which is a very big span of time um she took a plea he did not she was sentenced to 12 years got out in like three and a half he was sentenced to 60 years with no chance of parole right um and no uh, eligibility for um early release anyway and and I think one of the the, the thing the the sort of thesis of the movie that it want, that really wants you to um, get across is the idea of the passage of time and the impact that the passage of time has. And there's a lot of scenes that sort of punctuate that. There's a lot of scenes where, you know, as you saw, she's waiting on hold for long periods of time. There's long, uh, there's long uh, unedited scenes of her waiting on hold too, like where you really start feeling the right. passing of time in those scenes themselves. And I think when it's punctuating that point, um, it's, it's power, it's powerful in that sense. And it is powerful, you know, seeing, you know, scenes of, you know, the twin, like these twin boys, you know, just being uh, just after they're born and even her pregnant at one point, uh, with children and then seeing them grow up and then seeing the twins, you know, turn 18 and, and see the people that they've become, um, you know, they've all become really successful, you know, the, the kids and, uh, it's all been without the presence of their father. And, um, and I think that it also punctuates the point of, 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 of her being, uh, you know, again, like, a, like you said, a motivational speaker and activist, and it's got some powerful themes about forgiveness and, um, and, um, and, and, and that sort of thing. I think where the movie kind of whiffs a little bit is in the larger point that it's trying to make about prison reform and, um, and the sort of uh, the sort of issue of of like the the idea that he that that the sentence was extremely harsh for the crime committed. It, it right. the the goal is for is for the audience to to kind of be outraged at 
the sentence that was given, the harshness of it, um, and um, and and I think you know tying it into you know um, race being a big part of it as well. The problem is that the movie never really brings the context into the picture, and the the movie so it, it almost expects you to come to the movie knowing you know the facts of the situation which you know the disproportionate amount of of black people in prison and, and the uh you know the lengths of the sentences and heart and the the harshness of them and, and and you know the harshness of no eligibility for parole for that kind of crime and and like i think it it, it expects you to know that but it, it it doesn't come armed with any kind of statistics on this it doesn't come with any kind of backing up of these things and i think it 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 sort of misses the point because what you're what you're left with is um is is a really harsh reality of a situation that 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 is one specific example of a larger problem but not put into the proper context if that makes sense yeah i am i I struggle to say that that we shouldn't understand that at this point in the culture but I, i do think it's important I do think it's important for the movie to connect the dots. And I, I and th- that's a great way of putting it. And I don't know that it ever connects the dots because all of the points it's trying to make are extremely valid, you know? And we know we know these things to be truths and we know these things to be real problems with the prison system and the judicial system, but the movie never connects those dots because it is so much about, you know, again the passage of time, this specific story outside of the context that it lives in. And I, I just wish yeah. that I think its point would have been so much more powerful if the dots were connected in a more uh, in a more thorough way. Like if you if you punctuate what you see on screen with the larger context, with the larger point to really hammer home the idea that um, there is a, a disproportionate kind of messed up and flawed judicial system that is has the decks stacked against black people. Then I really think that you really make your point in a different and more um a stronger way yeah and you know the movie um it's challenging to 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 get to that point because the the crime did happen like they admit that they did it you know so you don't have that kind of immediacy of someone being railroaded um for a crime they didn't commit or or whatever and you have like the voice of reason, um, Sybil's mom, who's like, you know, so I'll stand by you, but you shouldn't have done this shit to start with. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just needs something else. I think that it's missing. It needs some sort of in to you know illustrate that this is a harsh sentence. Um, you know whether it was um, motivated by race motivated by um you know what level of offense this was classified as you know not that i i you know i want to be careful not to say it's like you know maybe this guy was already you know what did he have prior arrests you know what what informed this decision whether it was right or wrong what informed the the punishment um, that was doled out, and it, it, you know, I don't think there's any question that it's an excessive punishment for one incident. Yeah. Um, but you know what? What was mo- what motivated it? Was it pure? You know, and I don't know enough about the the Louisiana judicial system and the the laws in Louisiana. But you know, was it 
a, a strictly a decision that the judge made, that the jury made, that it was informed by a law that was necessitated that it be this way. Yeah, like what and, happened after you know she took the plea and he didn't. Like, what was the that you know right? Like, is there is there a like? mandatory sentence for right. X amount of things? And you know, not that that makes any of it right. It's just that would explain the situation better because you know you look at it through the lens of. This is one person trying to, um, you know, this is a woman trying to reunite her family, essentially, the, in it for a punishment she feels is is excessive and unfair, and that's that enough is is a story. Um, but you also have her activism on top of this, that kind of I don't want to say muddies the waters, but doesn't add any clarity to why she wants this reformed right and i think it what it ends up being is it ends up being an effective movie about the difficulty of having a family where while someone is incarcerated Mm -hmm. um but the bigger point it's trying to make about why that's the case how it's unfair how the uh, how the deck is stacked against that is the thing that that gets a little bit lost yeah um and it's really unfortunate too because you know this that's it's a it's a 100 percent valid point Mm-hmm. And the idea that, you know, this is an armed robbery, a, a crime of, you know, of desperation uh, committed in a man's youth, you know, is, is it enough to throw away his life for? You know, uh, I, I, as far as I can tell, no one got hurt. Uh, you know, no one was no one was killed and why the punishment was so excessive. You know, some comparison would be helpful, you know, comparing like a sentence for for you know, a, a, a similar crime or a crime that's more severe that someone got less time for. Or a crime, the same crime committed by a white person. Yeah, 100%. It was something that it's missing that um, for that part of the movie. And I think that the movie tries to have it both ways based on the feelings you have for for Sybil and her, her boys that, you know, this is a situation that no one should have to to grow up in um and i yeah it's, i think it's just missing some some details that would make this that would really sell it all the way and i i think that's unfortunate yeah um anyway what's your grade for time cody yeah and i agree with everything you said and i think that for for the good things in it it's very you know it's a powerful story it's got some great footage in it i think it's uh you know and it makes a lot of great points but again the 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 connective tissue was not entirely always there. So I'm, I'm going to give it a B minus based on um, the strength of it as a film all in all, um, even with those issues. Yeah. I'm going to give you, I'm giving it the same thing. I think it's um, a B minus is fair for, for, you know, it's, it's a very well-made documentary and, you know, it is kind of amazing that, that she was documenting this thing the whole time, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it's, it's home video footage but it tells the story. You know, it's not just used to illustrate the point. Like, it's telling the story. Um, so it's effective that way. I, I just I think as a broader issue film, it, it it's missing something that, that brings it all together. Um, but it is available right now on Amazon Prime. Um, yeah, let's move on to our last movie, Love and Monsters. Don't move. Let me see it. Don't move. Amy. Let me see it. Okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. I love it. That's super sweet because it's terrible. <laughs> oh my God. Where have you been, Joel? 
Amy, I love you. I'm gonna come find you. The day of the monster uprising was the day I lost everyone. Only a small fraction of humanity survived to move underground. I've been scanning for Amy the entire time. And now, I finally found her. Joel! Hey! Joel! Amy! Is that you? Oh my god! Hey! How far away is Amy's colony? 85 miles. It's an impossible journey. Every will try to kill you. Don't fight. Just run and hide. Huh? Okay. You all alone? Me too. You don't have to talk about it. You want to come with me? Look out! Is that a samurai sword? Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. So this is a film... Uh, from uh, the one of the the screenwriters is Brian Duffield, who of course did spon- uh, wrote and directed Spontaneous, which we covered last week. I think this is a little more along the lines of what you might expect from a, a YA movie, that being young adult movie. Um, and I think we have some different opinions on this one. Finally, in this episode, <laughs> Cody, tell us uh, about Love and Monsters and what you thought of it. Sure. So I mean, it starts with the basic enough premise, which is that. There was an asteroid coming and uh, that was going to threaten to end the world. They ended up shooting the asteroid down. And uh, as a result of the chemicals that happened, it basically mutated all of wildlife and made them into monsters. Um, all of cold-blooded wildlife. Okay, sure. All of that's, why the, that's why the dog is fine. Right. Um, which is a premise that really isn't, you know they don't do anything with that real premise. You know, I, I don't really think that there's any opportunities taken to make like anything like you would think that that would be ripe for comedy. Like, you know, someone trying to kill a giant cockroach and having to do it multiple times, like an easy joke or something like that. Like, you know, there's, there's just no, there's no real like comedy squeezed from that premise. Um, and so basically you have Dylan O'Brien's character who is a, um, what do you, what do you want to call him like a a, a weakling kind of guy? Um, I who, mean, who doesn't really serve a purpose in his in his colony? He's kind of like a like he freezes up. I think is the big thing. Like he's he under pressure. He's he he has the yips. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. The yips. So, so uh, so so you know, in 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 a lot of the explaining happens over voiceover, which I think is pretty bad voiceover, and I don't I'm not sure that he really sells it. Um, I, I don't think that he's very good in this movie. I'm not, I, I did not walk away from this movie being a Dylan O'Brien fan. I think that it's a, it's, it's kind of a weird casting and I don't know what it is. I think it might be like the casual nature that he says his dialogue. It just nothing, it did not really click for me. But anyway, um, his, his girlfriend at the time of the thing of the end of the world thing, um, got separated from him and, and she's in a different colony. And this happened, I think seven years, there were seven years in between right. the, the end of the, the end of the world thing. And, 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 and now, and so he decides he wants to travel, um, across, uh, California and, um, uh, you know, in the, in the, with the threat of monsters and, uh, and go see her. And I think once you've, once I figured out the, that plot line, I I knew to some degree what was going to happen when he got there, and I think it sort of robbed a little bit of its uh, of its uh, what's meant to be emotional moment. Um, and I think it is emotionally manipulative a lot of the time. I think that the best part of the movie happens once he gets out um, on his journey, 
and he runs into, as you see from that clip, um, Michael Rooker um, and uh, and a little girl who I don't know her name. Off the Ariana Greenblatt is her name. Ariana Greenblatt, um, and and they and that's where you know you made this point where it sort of momentarily has like a zombie land type turn yeah. and that's that's exactly the thing i thought of while watching it i was like oh this is it's trying to do a zombie land thing right now and that interaction is is brief but it's also the best part of the movie for me um i think i honestly think that michael rooker kind of rescues the movie for a short period of time and i think that a, a lot of the the emotional pull here is is really kind of a little bit of an easy pull of the um of the relationship between him and the dog um i think the dog is is kind of meant as like an emotional manipulation tool for most of this um for audiences who have a lot of reverence for dogs and that kind of thing well i mean i think every dog in every movie is like that though you don't yeah. I, I mean i guess i mean but it's 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 really pronounced in in here and there's just a lot of quirks to it that i don't think are successful like i don't think the there's a um, there's like a robot storyline here that it, I don't think is really successful, and really it, it all builds towards a third act in which I told you um, in a message that reeks of a rewrite. Um, to me, it seems like maybe they didn't know how to end the movie, or maybe they had an ending they needed changed, and they shoehorned a third act into the movie, which in itself has like a three act structure that is really rushed. Like it introduces a, a new villain that's only present for like 20 minutes of the movie who goes through a full arc where you're like, he's, he's, he's nice. And then, um, people, uh, he questions him and then like the dark turn comes. And I honestly think the third act of the movie is an absolute mess. Um, yeah, it, it turns into a real action movie at that point. Yeah. It turns into an action movie where like he gets to show his gumption finally. And you know, it's, it's, it's very generic feeling, but, but most importantly, it's a shoehorned ill fitting, ending and i just i again i don't i think the movie just kind of keeps going and um and uh and, and and never quite reaches the heights of that uh of kind of like that training stuff with with the with the rooker character and and ariana greenblatt and so um for me i i i was really not into anything happening uh until that moment and then the third act came and i was really not a fan of the way that this thing wrapped up yeah you know um I, I I disagree with you on on Dylan O'Brien. I, I think he's fun. I think the biggest problem the movie has is it doesn't really commit to building its world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think there so the basic premise of the the love story at the center of this is seven. He was separated from his girlfriend seven years ago. I think seven years is too long if you're talking about the apocalypse. Um, you know, it should be like six months or whatever. Um, I don't want to rewrite the film, but it it feels like there's there's not a lot of change to the character. And, and that would be comical if, you know, he were the only one in the apocalypse that hadn't changed. You know, like if he had been stayed this kind of meek character throughout, but he doesn't really like it just doesn't really like it doesn't really build enough with his like what this colony meant to him, which kind of comes in later in the film. Um, the Rooker stuff I think is, is good. Um, but it is almost abandoned. I want to say mm-hmm. like, it's, I don't want to, you know, it's, um, maybe that's a victim of the third act rewrite that appears to have happened. And I do agree with you. I, I think there's something wrong with a third act that they changed or something they felt was wrong with the third act that they changed into this action film because 
Rooker and the the girl never show back up except for this epilogue thing that's that is clearly entirely ADR. Yeah. Um which uh kind of robs their characters of of I think the arc that was promised them. You know, because um, because look for the whole movie, there's not a villain until like the last twenty minutes, right? You know, it's just this guy trying to make his way across to to meet to see his girlfriend again. Um, you know, I I don't feel like the world that he's living in is po- is properly post apocalyptic. The, the part with the robot, I actually did like. I just don't feel like it really kind of explained what the robot was, mm-hmm. like what the the significance of it was. Um, you know, cause for all in, intents and purposes, it, it seems to be like the apocalypse happened like present day. Right. You know, and then we're, we've gone from there seven years into the future. Um, you know, the robot stuff seems to, seems to be, uh, sort of beyond that. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's, I think Dylan O'Brien is good. I think the script just is kind of a big letdown for the most part in that it doesn't really sell everything that it, that it sets up, you know, it sets up this post-apocalyptic world where bugs have evolved into monsters and you get some of that. Um, but you don't really get a lot of it and you don't really get like the comedy that comes with it. Right. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're like, yeah, it's a, it's a mutated giant frog, but it just looks like a monster. Like if it looked like a big frog, that would be way funnier, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, or you know, uh, if, if it's cold-blooded stuff you're talking about, if it if it was just a giant sparrow or a giant hummingbird or something that was attacking, then that would be way funnier. Um, I, I do think it misses the mark um, in the humor, and I think the end is the end is a real big mess. Um, the villain is clearly telegraphed, which is a funny line. I, I got to admit, when when you're introduced to the villain, Dylan O'Brien has a great line. Um, that I think is it's a funny delivery, but I think for the most part, it's just a, it misses the mark quite a bit. All right, what's your grade for uh, Love and Monsters, Cody? Yeah, I mean, again, it's not unwatchable. I think this the, like for for what is probably seemingly a pretty low budget movie, the CGI is not terrible um, mm-hmm. for what's involved. And again, there's a good stretch of like 20 minutes of the Rooker stuff that I think really works. And I wish they could have built off of that versus like. I mean, quite honestly, like resetting the movie for the third act, uh, which is so strange. Um, so I have to give it a C. Yeah, I want to. I want to keep. We should have been addressing him as a former podcast guest, Michael. Yes, Rooker, friend of the, the show, Michael. Friend, Rooker. friend of the sh- friend of the show, Michael Rooker. Um, I wonder if he has. Do you think he has any re- recollection of that at all? I no just wonder, way. like, uh, like a like someone who like that who does so much press. Like, do they remember like the little shit that happens along the way? He may remember the car. I think if he remembers anything, he probably remembers the car. My brother's driving that car now. So <laughs> nice. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm going to give it a C plus. I don't think it's um, it's certainly not unwatchable, and it's certainly not without its charm. I do think it's missing um, some elements. It's missing humor uh, where it could have had more. I-, I did like the dog stuff. I don't think it's emotionally manipulative. I think the dog is funny. I think that the dog being sort of anthropomorphized uh, and humanized is funny. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's missing something that could have made it really good. And I, for the record, I didn't want it to become the zombie land thing that I felt like the Rooker thing was leading to, because um, we've seen Zombie Land. Uh, but uh, there was something there that I think could have been brought back up that was not. Yeah. Um, 
but this is available uh, on VOD and maybe in theaters. Is it? Yeah, it's playing in the drive-in at in New Braunfels here. So it's probably a good drive-in movie. I mean, it's a monster movie, so maybe yeah. that maybe it plays better there. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week. Next week, what do we have, Cody? Well, we have a couple of uh, interesting entries uh, to the VOD world. Uh, first up being Borat's subsequent movie film. Oh, yes. That's already next week. Holy cow. Time yep. flies. That's next Friday, um, hitting Amazon Prime. Also in Apple TV Plus, we have On the Rocks, which is the Sofia Coppola movie starring Rashida Jones and Bill Murray. Yes. Yeah. Been seeing a lot of talk about that one, too. Yeah. Uh, we also have Totally Under Control. The uh, oh yeah, the Alex Gibney, Alex Gibney COVID nineteen Trump documentary that's hitting, um, I believe Amazon <laughs> or no Hulu. That's going to be on Hulu. I gotta I gotta decide which order I watch. Do I watch <laughs> that first and get upset and then watch Borat and hopefully be happy? Hmm. I don't that, know. that might be the way to do it. Yeah. Um, and end on a high note um, of comedy. Uh, I hope then, it's funny. God, I hope it's funny. I Jesus, really, I yeah, I really want it to be good. Uh, the last movie, I was thinking about doing five movies. Well, well the, okay, the fourth movie is Synchronic, the um, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead movie who um, I loved from the movie Spring. Um, oh, yes. You do yeah. love that movie. They also did a movie called The Endless, which is pretty good. So their new movie is out. I don't think that we'll cover, just because I've heard it's terrible, um, but The Witches also opens on HBO Max, the new Robert Zemeckis movie. Um, <sighs> and I just don't know that I have the energy for it. <laughs> I, I haven't heard anything about it. I didn't realize it was terrible. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one that, that Paramount um, you know, offloaded to, um, to HBO Max. Or I think it was Paramount. Um, I had no idea. I have not been following it that closely. So. It's one of those, you know how... Um, a couple movies have been like sold to streaming services after, like uh, uh, the Lovebirds. Right. Um, it was one of those situations, um, but I have heard that it is not good. Ooh, I don't know. We'll have to see about that one because uh, since it's so accessible and it's people have such fondness for the 1990 version. Uh, I don't know. We I, I think we might want to cover that one, and it's almost Halloween. The witches. Anyway, whatever. Cool. Um, yeah, whatever. Um, if you want to reach us, you can email us at podcast at cinesnob.net. You can find us on Twitter at Cinesnob. Uh, Facebook, Cinesnob Critic. You can listen to our other podcasts, ReMCU, Rewatching the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and Quarant Stream. We have a new episode out uh, with uh, comedian Brandy Brown, uh, Minneapolis comedian, uh, also Heathcliff historian, uh, former co host of Bill Corbett's Funhouse. Bill Corbett, of course, uh, from Mystery Science Theater and Rift Tracks. Um, we talked about what did we what did we pitch to her? We pitched the Disaster Artist, and um, well, no, not the Disaster. Oh no, artist. no, no, no! Sorry, that was on the list. We pitched um, uh, Knives, Knives Out, Out and um, what was eighth your grade? Eighth grade. So uh, you can listen to which movie she uh, picks next week and listen to us talk about it this week. Uh, anyway, uh, you got another show, Cody, The Ramble. Got the Ramble, uh, Ramble Radio on Tuesdays and Fridays, uh, as well as the regular Ramble on Wednesdays, and then Good Willow Hunting, where I'm watching old movies uh, for the first time. Uh, this upcoming week will be uh, Midnight Run, and then the following week will be Tango and Cash. I've actually never seen either of those. I watched Tango and Cash last night. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of... Tango and Cash is one of those that's... Um, it's It's a cultural touchstone, I think. Um, but for the wrong reasons, 
Yeah, I think that's probably fair, though. I will say I have seen much worse 80s movies than Tango and Cash, for sure. Yeah, it's Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell, of course. Um, I can remember, like, like the only thing I can remember about seeing publicity for the movie was uh, a dick joke about guns. Like, oh, there's... Like, why is your gun bigger? Genetics or whatever. Like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of dick jokes, a lot of dick references, a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of homoeroticisms uh, sprinkled throughout the movie. It's, it's very, very homoerotic. And it's, it's like full mullet. Um, full, well, yeah, full-blown full mullet, Kurt Russell. Yeah. And you get Sylvester Stallone in his smart guy glasses phase. Ooh, like this is like right before Oscar, too. Did you ever see Oscar? Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I, I know that I saw Oscar. I don't remember a thing about it. I remember seeing it. I went with some friends at the, we were, we went like their moms took like two friends of mine took like me and my sister with them. I believe my sister to the dollar theater, the Cinemark dollar theater in San Antonio to watch Oscar. And I remember we saw that Ninja Turtles was playing at the same time. We were like, let's just go see that again. <laughs> I'm like, no, we want to see Oscar. So they took like 12 year olds to see or 11 year olds to see fucking Oscar. I don't anyway. even know what that's about. I don't remember, but it's like a it's like a period comedy. Ugh. Uh, <laughs> let's see what the movie is about. Uh, I, man, what the hell was that movie about? Oh, it's it, God! It came out in ninety one, so it must have been like uh, Ninja Turtles two. It's directed by uh, John Landis. It's a it's a it's based on a play and a remake of a French film. Jesus Christ! Um, oh God! And his name is uh. uh <laughs> <laughs> so Mr. Stallone's name is Angelo Snaps Provolone. <laughs> Provolone? <laughs> Jesus Christ. That is racist. Man, I don't even know what this movie's about. Um, well, I, I love the characters of Tango and Cash are Ray Tango and Gabe Cash. Like, that's a, such a fucking 80s thing. That reminds me, we were talking about The Crow. Um, oh, yeah. And I this past week. And um, I've somehow seen every Crow movie. Uh, mm. the, the first one with Brandon Lee, I, I think is great. I love, and it's very, I mean, it, I don't know outside of its context, if you watched it today, like fresh to it, I don't know if it would hold up, but being in that nine, 1994 phase of like goth industrial music stuff, it's great. Um, the movies get progressively worse and worse. And I think the most recent one is, um, called Crow, the Crow Wicked Prayer. And it has, um. First of all, Edward Furlong is the crow, which wow. is great. Um, I think Emmanuel Chikri is his girlfriend. Oh, wow. Uh, and then um, Dennis Hopper's in it somewhere. But the vi- the main villains are played by David Boreanaz and Tara Reid. And their <laughs> names are uh, Crash and Burn. It's like Lola Crash <laughs> and something Burn. I, I, it's like, God, man, it fucking sucks. God, it sucks so bad. God, I but love But it's that so, so funny that their names are Crash and Burn. Anyway. Um. Man, what? <laughs> I, I still cannot get over Angelo Provolone. <laughs> Angelo snaps Provolone. <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, anything else before we go? Nah. All right. On that note, my name is Jared Kingery. And I'm Cody Viafania. Thank you for listening to the Cine Snob Podcast. To read reviews, interviews, and more, visit cinesnob.net. See you next week.